Uh, this week, one of the popular memes that have been flying around the internet has um, involved Match.com's newest advertisement for the Christmas season. Um, it features Satan scrolling through Match.com trying to find his match. And he eventually settles on his first uh, kind of significant match. After he filters out joy and hope and toilet paper, he finds a girl called 2020. And um, they're in conversation, and she's like, they're like, we're a match made in, you know, right? Um, and, and it shows them taking selfies in front of a dumpster fire. Um, it shows them stealing toilet paper. And they're like, this, it's like we were made for each other. And that, in some ways, that uh, has been such a popular advertisement because I think in some ways it cap captures the sentiment of many people when I hear them talk about 2020. Uh, they talk about what was taken from them. They talk about um, how this year um, didn't turn out what they thought it was going to be like last year. I mean, for us as a church, we have a worship communion night early March, and um, you know we're kicking into a new series. And then on March 8th, uh, we don't have service anymore, and it's the doors close, and that's the way it's been. For many of us, we've uh, lost jobs, we've lost loved ones, we've lost a sense of predictability, we've lost our sanity because our kids are trying to uh, do Zoom in their classroom at the same time you're trying to have an important meeting or, um, you know, pursue new clients, and you're all fighting for the internet, but this year doesn't feel like it's good. And as we go into uh, the Christmas season, there's a chance that Christmas could leave us a little disappointed because the ideas of being able to travel and see family and see loved ones that we thought maybe back in the summer would surely by Christmas it would be done. And here we are still stuck at home or here we are kind of limited to the kind of the circle that we have. And that maybe for you, some of you, you're looking at your business that has been hanging on, but as, as the kind of the measures stay in place, Financially, your business keeps taking a hit, and you're wondering, how much longer do I have? And that this Christmas doesn't look like any other Christmas you or I have ever experienced. And my desire over the course of this month is for us to journey through Christmas, but not this Christmas, not Christmas 2020. It's all good because I want to take you back to the first Christmas. I don't know, what comes to mind when you think about the first Christmas? Um, what comes and pops in, what pictures? You know, do you have the image of the little, you know, barn stable and Mary and, you know, they kind of arrive and all the different characters that typically make up the story with the shepherds and the wise men coming from afar, right? The... Christmas story invokes an image for many of us that looks, in some ways, whether grown up or childish, it looks a little bit like this, and it centers around little baby Jesus. And in some ways, that's okay. But I think in a year like this year, that maybe we need to kind of put it back in the box and take a step back and look at the first Christmas. Because the first Christmas, I think, has a lot to say to us about this Christmas. 
We need a little bit more than a manger scene. We need a little bit more than the three wise men standing over to the side. I think one of the reasons that for many of us, there's more excitement about Hallmark movies and the spirit of Christmas and all those traditions is that sometimes we lose sight of how revolutionary and how radical and how transformative the first Christmas really was. To take you there, I want to um, look at the writings of one of the earliest historians around the Christian faith, a man whose brilliance um, was um, so unsurpassed it allowed him to cross into multiple fields of study. He was a medical doctor, and he was a brilliant thinker and writer turned Ken Burns historian. He was the ancient equivalent of a Netflix or BBC documentary. He was a man who had been paid by some patrons to go and research the Christian faith and to understand fully what the Christian faith and this thing called the church really was about. And so he, named Luke, sets out and researches. He sits down with Mary. He interviews the disciples. He uh, goes to where it all began and really started to dig into the historical records and produced for a man named Theophilus what we now call a two-volume set of the book of Luke and the book of Acts. That two-volume set was born out of his research, out of his diligence, out of his disciplined approach to detail. And it shows up in how he tells us the birth story. What gives Luke a unique kind of perspective in the fact that he's able to write this story is that we know from historical records and from evidence in the text that um, Luke sits down with Mary. Before she passes away, Luke is able to interview her. And in the course of interviewing her, he gets more details about the early kind of moments around Jesus' birth than practically anyone else in the early church. That while Matthew and his biographical account of the life of Jesus have some details, it's Luke that gives us the biggest, most intimate, emotionally engaging, and, and broadest perspective of the Christmas story, of that first Christmas. He begins in Luke chapter 2 with the words, in those days, because he's taking Theophilus, who was the original reader, back to the earliest moments around Jesus' life. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. He says, I want to kind of remind you about that moment when Caesar Augustus issued a decree. What was his decree? It was that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. One of the things that pops up really quickly is that um, Luke is a man of history. He's dating this whole experience to when Quirinius was over Syria, when Caesar Augustus issues a decree, all historical pieces of fact that we can back up. And he says that, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. He's saying, you know, Caesar's decree made everyone move around and to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So this decree causes everyone to go back to their hometown to be registered, to make sure a census essentially was um, kind of verifying, counting, and um, helping Rome take kind of account so that their accountants can make sure tax revenue is flowing correctly. And it says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
Luke's attention to detail shows up throughout the story. One of the things that it does very quickly when you read Luke's account carefully is it completely shatters most of our manger scenes that we have in our mind. That there is not a barn, uh, there's not Mary riding on a donkey at nine months pregnant in labor, you know, and she's going from the La Quinta Inn to the Holiday Inn to the, you know, the Four Seasons and all the hotels, all the hotel owners are like, sorry, there's no vacancy. Sorry, we, you know, keep moving. You should have booked on Hotels.com a lot earlier. You know, check Travelocity. Sorry, we're booked up. Maybe try the Marriott. Like, none of that plays out. It says, while they were there, why were they there? They were there because the census had ordered them to go back to that place where Joseph's family was from. And while they're there, eventually the time came for her to give birth. So it's not a donkey ride and a pregnant lady in nine months and, you know, in labor and one of those dramatic scenes. It's, they were there, and when time came, they gave birth to the son. And Luke, because he spent time with Mary, he's being very careful about the words he writes, words that to honestly, for some of us, the way we grew up, even the way we grew up in church may startle you, right? Luke makes a point that she gave birth to her firstborn. That's the actual word he writes in the language that he writes this letter, the historical record. He doesn't say to her only son. There's another word for that. He says to her first son. Why? Well, because Luke's a historian, and he knows that Mary had other children. Those other children are alive, and people know who they are because Jesus is a famous figure in the first century. And so he's being very careful about his attention to detail. And he's listening to Mary tell her story, and she says, that's where I gave birth to my firstborn, Jesus, my son. Because she would go on, and she would have more children just like every other family in the first century. And it would be a large family, just like most families in the first century. But for some of us, even that phrase, perhaps maybe how you grew up, painted such a distant picture for you. Or traditions and other storylines kind of emerged throughout history that seems to almost contradict what Luke is. And one of the things that I really value in my teaching is that I want to make sure that I am being historically and biblically accurate because I want to make sure that you understand the Bible text, even if you don't agree with it, that you and I would at least walk away understanding it better. Because I think sometimes the storylines that get built around it, the little manger scenes and the cutesiness of it, turns the Christmas story, the first Christmas, into the Christmas story. That's the, the thing that we all know about, the, you know, the Charlie Brown moment where this passage gets read, but we end up missing out what Luke was trying to accomplish. It says, she wrapped him in cloths and she placed him in a manger, and the manger is a feeding trough. It's a place where animals would eat. And it says, because there was no guest room available for them. Luke, in his original two-volume set with his language, he'll actually use this word a couple times. Um, the way the first century house was constructed and in Israel, you would have an upper room and you'd have a lower room. The upper room was the, the nicer, fancier, you would allow guests to stay there, uh, the upper room is where the last, uh, Luke will use it to talk about the Last Supper the, or the communion moment um, where they celebrate Passover. It's in that room, the guest room, that uh, they have 
that moment with Jesus before he's arrested. The lower room was, uh, was designed to be kind of a, a catch-all. It was where the animals were kept at night. Um, it's where they were fed. Um, it wasn't the most uh, comfortable room, but the reason the upstairs is completely full is because the census has occurred. People are everywhere. They're all jammed into Bethlehem, which was a tiny little village outside of Jerusalem. It would have been a small little um, distant suburb of Jerusalem. And so when it comes time to give birth, Mary gives birth in the lower room because it would have been a little awkward in the upper room surrounded by all the family members. And there is no crib, there is no space, so they place Jesus in, in simple cloths inside of a feeding trough. Now, that's what plays out, but that's not what Theophilus would have heard. He would have had a bigger picture of Christmas, of the first Christmas. When Luke writes, in those days, Caesar Augustus, that would have jumped out to Theophilus. We're 2,000 years removed, and so uh, the idea of Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus doesn't register with the weightiness that it would have registered in the first century. If you're a historian, yeah, you definitely know who Caesar Augustus is. But for most people who don't dwell in Roman history, those names don't carry the weight they would have carried in the first century. You see, an actual phrase around Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus is the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who's the first emperor of Rome. He um, takes over and establishes the Roman Empire in the way that most of us think of the Roman Empire when we think of it. He has an adopted son named, uh, who gets the title Caesar Augustus, and Caesar Augustus, whose um, influence is still felt because it's, it's him specifically that the, the month of August is named after. And so Caesar Augustus was seen to be one of the, the phrases, an actual inscription dedicated to him, said, divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, son of a God. Because Julius Caesar was seen to be divine, and Augustus Caesar, while he was alive, um, others treated him like he was God, but he never explicitly said that he was a God. But he would walk around with the title, son of a God. And um, people would call him the savior of the whole world, the one who peace would come through. He was Lord. Those were the titles associated with Caesar Augustus. And so in the midst of that historical backdrop, um, that's, the, that's what Luke is writing. He's like, in those days, Caesar Augustus. And he's like, oh my goodness, Caesar Augustus, one of the most famous people who've ever lived, one of the most significant leaders in all the earth, because it was under Caesar Augustus that uh, that huge a historical label of the Pax Roma was labeled. You see, Pax Roma was this idea of the Roman peace that as modern Americans, we take for granted um, what it looks like to live in a world that's predominated by um, lack of wars. Like you can travel to, well, you, you used to could travel to Rhode Island without any consequence, but like you could travel to states and wars didn't break out and you didn't have to have papers and have, uh, you know, tribal agreements with each other. Um, we take for granted how easy it is to go 3,000 miles around the nation and be able to kind of freely move. But in the ancient world, you often were limited to wherever your family or your tribe or your kind of tribe of tribes was residing. 
You didn't venture into other places because you couldn't communicate because there was no uh, language that was the language of business. So what happens is Pax Roma under Augustus, roads are built that span the entire empire because everyone's speaking the same language. There is no boundary lines between Syria and Macedonia and all the different areas, Italy, modern day. Like they were all under one umbrella of Caesar Augustus. This Pax Roma is the reason Mary and Joseph could freely travel. It changed and shaped the whole world they lived in. That was the significance of the Pax Roma. It was a peace that was present because people there growing up, prior to that generation, most of them had only known a life of war. And now wars had ceased under Caesar Augustus. Kind of reminds me of a moment in Christmas Eve of 1914 in the trenches in Belgium where uh, Germans, in the middle of Christmas Eve evenings, uh, they begin to, to set up and to sing songs and to celebrate the Christmas moment. And as the Germans begin to do this, decorating a Christmas tree and singing carols and lighting candles, the British and the French soldiers on the other side of no man's land in their trench could hear them and started to begin to sing with them. And what plays out in those hours of that Christmas Eve of 1914 has uh, been labeled a lot of different things, but some have called it the Christmas truce or the Christmas miracle. Because eventually no man's land, which was an area that hours before no man would have ventured into, is now the place where a soccer match is being played, where handshakes and presents are being exchanged by the Germans and the British and French forces. Instead of shooting bullets, they're exchanging gifts and handshakes. You have German machine gunners who were firing at those people hours before who now is cutting the hair of British and French soldiers. This is completely different than the way it was just hours before when they were both fighting for each other's nations and lives. But in some ways, I feel like the Christmas truce of 1914, that moment, captures what it would have been like for the Roman Empire in this moment. It, it was a faux Pax Roma. It was not real peace in, in the same way that the Christmas truce of 1914 wasn't real peace either. It was a pause in the war not peace, from the war. And that everything about the Christmas story, everything about the first Christmas is riddled with Roman control. The reason Joseph and Mary have to uproot from their home and travel 90 miles in three days is to go to Bethlehem. Why? Because of the census. Because a man on his palatial hill overlooking the Roman forum decided he wanted to count all the heads in his empire so that he could better estimate his tax revenue. Oftentimes with censuses, because of historical documents, when a Roman census was taken, you would often pay a tax and have to swear an oath of allegiance to the emperor. And so all of a sudden, this romantic notion of Mary and Joseph and a donkey and going to a barn and, uh, you know, having a, a baby and it's all cute and the stars shining and everything about that night, um, it's completely not true. It doesn't reflect what it really was like. 
we take two years worth of events and we shove them down into one neatly packaged romantic notion of the first Christmas. The wise men uh, probably didn't come until two years after Jesus was born. The reason we know that is not because I say it, but because in Matthew's account, when he talks about King Herod and the wise men that come, and they're not three, um, but they show up, and what does Herod do? They give them a time frame, and they ask the, the individuals, when did the star first appear? And so when the wise men sneak out, realizing that Herod was actually looking to capture Jesus, um, Herod goes and kills every single boy under the age of two in Bethlehem. Why? Because the time frame they had described would have meant that Jesus could have been anywhere from a young baby to a toddler, which is why they're still there. They've settled down with family. It's a lot more convenient. And that night, they have to flee as refugees to Egypt, where they're going to live until Herod passes away. Everything about the first Christmas is riddled with Roman oppression. There's racial tension. There's political tension. We know that in that same time period when Crinius um, unleashes his census that there's actually a revolt. There's riots. There's an attempted coup of some Jewish rebels trying to overthrow the Roman Empire that ends tragically. That everything about that first story, that first Christmas, was not peaceful at all. It was chaotic. It was uncertain. It was their life had been thrown up in the air. These Jewish people who had built their entire world around this promise that God was going to come and rescue was now asking questions about where God was because it had been 400 years since they'd heard from him. Everything about that moment was a reminder of how much they didn't have control. I mean, this outside force they had no control over that was so much more powerful than they were dictated every terms of their day. It upended life. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like you're living in a year where your year is marked by the things you can't control, by the despair and the hopelessness, the, the moment you're waiting for some, something to happen to bring freedom from this outside force that's controlling your life. Sounds a little bit like 2020, doesn't it? You see, that's not the only part of the story. That's not the only aspect of that first Christmas evening. There's some more. It says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Um, Luke points out they're living out in the fields because he's dating this roughly. Uh, shepherds lived in the field from March to November. Again, it kind of crushes this notion of, you know, this winter evening, December 25th. That's um, something that came a lot, lang a lot later. Um, shepherds lived out in the fields from March to November. And so somewhere in that window of time, uh, they're out there and they're keeping watch over their flocks at night. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, because that's what you do when something terrifying happens. So here they are living in the fields. They smell like sheep. They are considered the um, kind of roughneck, rednecks of the Jewish society. If you wanted, if, if you were in trial and a shepherd agreed to testify on your behalf, you would be very tempted to tell him not to show up to court, because he would make you look bad. 
because shepherds were seen as untrustworthy. Uh, they were seen as scrappy. They were seen as dirty. They smelled like sheep because they lived with sheep. And it's to those people that the first birth announcement arrives. It's not um, Palatine Hill in Rome where Caesar Augustus's palace was built. It was on the hillside with a group of shepherds watching over sheep. And that when the angels appear, it says that they said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. Now, for you to understand how truly shocking this would have been. The phrases, great joy for all the people, that, those were words used about Caesar Augustus. Savior, a Lord, those were titles given to Caesar Augustus, the great king of the Roman Empire, the victorious conqueror who had ushered in peace to the world. Well, no, actually, the peace to the world is going to come through this person. And, and what's the sign? Is it going to be um, a palace? Is it going to be Prince Ali, fabulous, he, Ali, wow, you know, and kind of this huge ushering force and all of these trumpets like bum, 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 and Instagram selfies with celebrities because they're all wanting to be present for the royal baby's birth. No, it's a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. It's a kid wearing clothes that you would have gotten from Goodwill. Who that Luke says will be for the good of everyone. And then it says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace. Not the peace that Augustus had brought that was only surface level but peace to the entire earth, not just on the surface level, but to the soul too. But I want you to notice something. When the angels come and they declare, says the angels say, do not bring you, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. See, the first Christmas wasn't called Christmas. It was called good news. The first Christmas was good news. Luke is communicating to Theophilus and to us 2,000 years later. It's not just a good story. It's good news. Good news changes your life. A good story doesn't. Good news brings hope. A good story brings distraction. And Luke says that what I... What I heard from the people, what I heard from Mary, who told me about the night that Jesus was born and how smelly, shady-looking shepherds showed up, saying, there he is, there's the one. And Mary grabs him a little closer, and he says, no, no, you don't understand. We were out in our fields, and the sky, it just lit up, and there were angels, and they were telling us that the hope of the world had been born. A Savior, real peace, and it was Him. These are good news. 
And why is it good news? Why is it not just a good story? It's because for 400 years, a people who had lived under oppression and racial oppression and segregation, a people who had been conquered and defeated by different empires for the last 400 years, wondering when will God bring peace? When will God show up in my story? When will God stop this force in our lives that's constantly taking over? The good news is that hope has been born. It's here. It's near. It's what the prophet 700 years had said when he said the child has been born. And you'll, you'll call him wonderful counselor and everlasting father and the prince of peace. That baby, God in flesh, is near. Hope is finally here. That the good news of Christmas is no matter how dark or despairing, no matter how much you feel out of control, no matter how, how, how uncertain life is, no matter how much peace is not present in your life, God has come near to us. No matter how forgotten you felt, no matter how lonely you are, hope is near. It's here, they say. And how do they know that? How? Because they're the perfect people to be his messenger for that. Because they're the last people who would have ever gotten that birth announcement. They had been overlooked. They had been forgotten. They were the people that the religious people would have surely said, God doesn't care about their dirty shepherds. And yet God, wanting to make the point that I see you, I have not forgotten you, I know your pain, I know the pressure, I know what's happening. That's the good news. Not that just I know, but that I've come to bring freedom, peace, and joy. At the beginning of December, or end of November, right, we're... We kind of tasted that for a brief moment in that Moderna and Pfizer both, re both released this shocking headline that the vaccine they'd been working on was over 90% effective. That wasn't a good story. That was good news. It meant that finally we have a light potentially at the end of this dark tunnel we've been wandering in for almost nine months. And what happened in good news? People started to get excited. People started to say, oh my goodness, like, finally. You mean we might actually get out of this? Business owners started to think, maybe my business can make it if I just make it through. It changed how we saw the world. And like the shepherds who said, when they saw it, they said, this thing that's happened, so they hurried. They responded. They moved. That's why no matter where you are, no matter what you and I are going through, no matter what 2020 looks like, no matter what kind of match it's made in, Merry Christmas is a reminder to you and to me that God is near, that hope is here, that he sees you. He sees you in the struggle. He sees you in your uncertainty. He sees you in the inner chaos. 
He sees your marriage. He sees your kids and the struggles they're having. And that he stepped in not to simply to treat the surface tension, but to bring hope and peace to the innermost parts of your being. A peace that was greater than the circumstances. A peace that's stronger than the uncertainty. And a hope that's greater than the despair or the depression or the darkness that you and I may find ourselves. It's a reminder that no matter what 2020 looks like, our hope is not in 2021. Our hope is in the fact that God gave us His Son. That hope was born. That God is here. And that peace is near for you and for me. See, Christmas is not just a good story. It's good news. Better than any news you and I might read or hear this year. Because God is near. And as we close out today, I want to give you some questions to maybe for some of you who, you know, maybe FaceTime or maybe have coffee with a friend or with a loved one. Um, like to write questions that kind of help um, take the message into deeper places so that the hope and the help of the Christmas story can, can radiate in every area of your life. I know there are life groups that meet regularly, use these questions. And so the first one is, what surprised you about the first Christmas? Some of you are probably upset with me because I said something in this message that was ultimately what Luke said. Because maybe I pressed into your notion of the manger scene. But it's so much better when we realize what is really going on. Because we need more than just a cute nativity scene this Christmas. We need a little bit more than a Hallmark movie level Christmas story. We need the good news that the first Christmas really was. So what surprised you? What did you not know? What kind of jumped out at you? And here's the thing. Instead of writing an angry email to me, which you can, um, I encourage you, look into it. Prove me wrong. Dig in to what Luke wrote. Look at the Christmas story with fresh eyes and see it through the lens of the first Christmas when it was called Good News. Not this Christmas when so many people would just call it a good story. And what's the difference between a good story and good news? See, this question has power to unlock a lot of things because there's implications to the good news. In fact, the rest of the month, I'm just going to be unpacking those implications of the good news of the first Christmas. And then the final question is, how does the first Christmas change how you see this Christmas? Man, that's, that's the question. That's the moment. How does that Christmas change how I live, how I experience, and how I see this Christmas? Because Christmas wasn't just a good story. It was good news. And good news changes everything.